Packers. Good morning. Um, Candy and I have been friends with uh, Pat and Amy for about a decade now. I uh, first met Pat when I was pastoring in Chattanooga. I'll tell you a funny story. And they invited me to be on a panel uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention, which uh, I just graduated from the seminary. And uh, I didn't know at the time the two guys on the panel. One of them was David Landreth, who would be the pastor I would follow at Long Hollow. And the other was Pat Hood. And I thought, man, these guys are pretty bold to be speaking to the executive director of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention just boldly and just openly. And so I thought, I got to meet this guy. And we went to dinner that night after the convention and have been friends ever since. Um, it's a joy to be here with you. Uh, I prayed about what I would speak to you today. And I want to speak to you a message uh, entitled, Praising God for All the Right Reasons in the hardest situations. Praising God for all the right reasons in the hardest situations. Uh, I have my beautiful wife, Candy, here, and we were coming uh, in the door, and I was telling her it's very rare that we get to go to a church where she has spoken at LifePoint. This is a very special church to us, by the way, and she has spoken at LifePoint, and and I have had the privilege to be here, and so uh, it's a joy, and I have our two boys as well with me uh, as well, uh, which one of them said, do we have to stay for both services to hear you? Is there like a kid's minute, student ministry? I'm like, yeah, you can go. Don't have to listen to me twice, son. You know? um, I wanna start with a, a little bit of a game. It's a question game. Uh, it's basically either or. I'm gonna ask you two questions, or I'm gonna ask you one question. You can decide which one you like. Either or, do you prefer ice cream or cake? Okay, so who, who, who in here likes ice cream? I'm a big ice cream person. Who likes cake in here? Okay. Um, what about steak or seafood? Okay. Who likes steak in here? Any steak? Wow, a lot of steak. Who likes seafood? So I'm from South Louisiana. We prefer, Candy and I are uh, seafood eaters. Okay, here's another one. Would you rather have a mountaintop experience or walk through the valley? <laughs> That's pretty simple, right? I, I got you on that. Because the reality is we all, I mean, if we had a choice, we would all choose the mountaintop experience. Why? Because the, the views are better up there, right? It's, it's easier, we think. There's more fun on the mountaintop. It's more satisfying. There's more joy on the mountaintop. And you would be right at times. But I want to submit to you today that it's through the valley where we learn the greatest lessons. The greater the adversity, write this down, the greater the opportunity for growth. If you're taking notes, the, the greater the adversity, the greater the opportunity for growth. As beautiful as the mountains are, you can't stay in the mountains forever. There's nothing that grows on the top of the mountain. It's in the valley where true growth happens. I remember Candy and I were in a season of difficulty. It was early on in our marriage. Rig, our oldest, who's here with us, was one years old at the time. And we'd gotten pregnant, and we were all excited, super excited, you could imagine. And we were in Chattanooga at the time, and we went back to see our family who, who were in Louisiana. And I was speaking on a college campus. And we had a little gathering on Saturday night, and we were going to surprise them and let them know that they're going to be grandparents for the second time. And we had this get-together, and little Rig walked out with his shirt on, and it said, I'm going to be a big brother. 
And my parents and Candy's parents, they were overjoyed, you can imagine. That night, I went to preach at the Nickel State BCM, and right before I was getting up to preach, Candy came up to me and she said, I don't feel good. And I said, what's wrong? She said, I don't know, I just don't feel right. And so we found ourselves later that night, about 9.30 or 10, at the emergency room in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And we didn't leave till around midnight to find out as the doctor came in, he said, I have bad news for you. Uh, you're losing the baby. And for some of you, you've been there, right? You know what that's like. It was a very, very difficult season early in our marriage. I just remember how overwhelming it was. But I also remember, and you can go there too if you look back on seasons like this, you can go back now and see the fingerprint of God. You can see that in the worst situations, God works the best, amen? I mean, we know that now. In hindsight, it's easy to see. And we begin to look back now on our life through that difficult season, and we see that it was through that time that God strengthened us. God lifted us up. And so we're going to ask the question today, well, does that happen in everyday life? Does that happen in the scripture? Do we see that? I'm going to show you a passage from the book of Philippians, if you have a Bible. And I want to show you how the Apostle Paul is going to teach us a lesson about how to respond in suffering and what is our posture in suffering. And I just want to say, I know you're in the middle of a season right now. I know Pat and his family are in the middle of a difficult season. You're hurting as a church. You're, I mean, we're, we're hurting with you. I remember when we got the news of, of Amy's passing, just overwhelmed by that. And I'm not here to give you any words to make the pain go away. There's really nothing I can say. But I do want to encourage you from Scripture. And I want to show you how in the midst of the hardest seasons of life, God will grow us and shape us and mold us because he uses it to bring us closer to him. One of the things I know about God is, you can write this down, there are no accidents in the economy of God. Did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? Say that again. Did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? And so if that's the case, it's a, it's a mindset change. Paul's gonna show us. If you have a Bible, go with me to Philippians chapter one, we like to say word at Long Hollow, the church I pastor. So if you're there, you can say word. Also lets me know if you're not sleeping. So if you're there, we know why, because we get in the word. I know you have a pastor who unapologetically preaches the word of God, and that's a rarity today, amen? So blessed here at LifePoint. But if you're there, you can say word. Say it like you mean it. Amen, amen, thank you. The word of the Lord. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for who? For Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I want to teach you two insights about Paul advancing the kingdom in spite of circumstances. And the first one is this, and that is the kingdom advances in spite of our present circumstances. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. If not, you act like it, it makes you look holy. 
The kingdom advances, well, it does, right? I mean, the kingdom advances in spite of our present circumstances. Now, Paul is actually baffled by this. Why? Because Paul is saying you would think the opposite would happen. You would think that when the preacher of God is in a prison cell, that the, the gospel message would be muffled. But actually, it's just the opposite. Paul is saying, look at the text. He's saying that it's not stifled, it's actually advancing. Now, let me give you the background of a Roman prison back then. Paul's gonna spend two different stints in prison. The latter part of his life, he's gonna go to Rome to a Mamertine prison, which was basically a hole in the ground. It was a prison cell in a cave. It was very dark and and damp and uh, difficult to be in, if you can imagine. But this first imprisonment, this is the first of two, Paul is in a rented house church, believe it or not. And back then, uh, if, because he's a Roman citizen, he's able to rent a house on his own dime, so he has to pay for it. He has to rent a house, and that's why he's taking up collection, so he can stay in this house. And in that home, there is a Roman guard that is chained to him 24-7. So Paul's in a home, he can freely move around, but this Roman guard is chained to him. And so every day there's a shift change and Paul, you have to believe, is using this as a platform to share the gospel. I mean, think about it. First guy sits down. He's like, hey, did you know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? There's no one righteous. Did you know this? No one, not one. All were turned away. All have become meaningless. But the good news is this, that even though we're separated from God because of the sin of Adam, if you confess with your mouth, Mr. Centurion, and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Now you have to believe. There were soldiers who dreaded their daily duty, right? I mean, it's like, this guy again? Come on, man. Like, I gotta go sit with this guy. And I have to believe some of them didn't wanna sit by Paul. But you also have to believe many of them were radically saved. See, Paul used his present circumstance as a platform for the gospel. Now, Paul's not a foreign, uh, or prison's not foreign to Paul because Paul has already been in prison before in Acts chapter 16. Go with me for a moment to Acts 16, and I wanna show you the book of Philippians, actually the context of the jail of Philippi that Paul was imprisoned in uh, not long before. Acts chapter 16, verse 25 let me just set it up. Paul is actually going to town with Silas and Luke, and they're there. And there's a girl who's been possessed by a demonic spirit, and she has what's called the spirit of divination. And so basically, she has the ability to speak into someone's life about their life or the future in a demonic fashion. And so Paul sees this bondage, and so what does he do? He casts out the demon. So you think that's a good thing, this girl's set free. But it's actually a bad thing because those men who actually own this slave girl lose their income, is very lucrative, because now she can't foretell the future. And so now they grab Paul and Silas, they strip them naked, a riot starts, they beat them with rods, and they throw them in prison. So that's the context of Acts chapter 16, verse 25. If you're there, you can say a word. Watch this. About midnight... I love midnight. You know why it says midnight, I think? Because that is the darkest point and you're gonna see the brightest light. Watch this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake 
so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You have to understand, if a, if a warden loses prisoners in that day, he pays for it with his life. So he's just trying to get ahead of things and say, well, I'm just gonna end my life because I don't wanna be killed. And Paul cries out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now you have to understand the context. Paul is beaten with rods He and Silas are in this prison cell. They're in a dark period of time. It's very easy for them to get discouraged. And what do they do? At the most difficult season, I want you to get this, the most difficult season of his life, what does he do? For doing a good thing, by the way. He's doing a good thing. What does he do? Audience participation, by the way. (laughs) He praises God, right? He has a worship service. What Paul does is, it's pretty amazing, you see it in the text, Paul is going to praise God in a prison. And I want to submit to you today, Elvis ain't got nothing on these two, right? Because this is the first time the jailhouse rocks, right? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I mean, I mean, really, that's the, think about it. The, the jailhouse rocks. And Paul's going to teach us the secret I want you to get well. And here it is. Worship, write this down. I want you to get this. Worship changes your attitude and your attitude changes your altitude whether you're depressed or joyous, whether you're in the dumps or excited. Worship changes, write this down, your attitude, and attitude changes your altitude. Worship changes your mind. Worship changes your outlook. You can't control your circumstances, none of us can, but you can control your worship, right? Like we can control whether we worship or not. And I think it's fascinating, Paul turns a pity party in a prison cell into a praise service with the prisoners. And they're all praising and worshiping God. He knows that this is a bad situation, but he also knows God's still in control. This is what James was trying to get across at the beginning of his book, right? Remember this verse? Count it all what? Say it again. Joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kind. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith, the trials of life produce perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in you so that you and I may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So in order for us to be mature and complete, lacking nothing in the Christian life, how does that happen? We have to count trials as what? As joy. Jordan Peterson said it this way. He said, happiness, I love this quote, happiness is always found in the uphill journey not in the fleeting satisfaction awaiting at the next peak. I love that. Happiness is always found in the journey uphill, not in the fleeting sense of satisfaction awaiting the next hill. I mean, Paul knows this. Paul knows this principle. The greatest opportunity lies or lives where the greatest discomfort lies. Let me say it again. Paul knows that the greatest opportunity lives where the greatest discomfort lies. 
Paul also knows that true growth begins where our comfort zone ends. Paul knows that there's triumph through trials. Friends, I want you to understand that God doesn't put us through trials in life to show us how strong we are or even how weak we are. God puts us through trials to show us how strong he is and how good he can be and trusted. I want you to think about your life right now. Should be an encouragement to us, why? Because all of us in life are dealt a hand of cards when we're born, did you know this? God will deal a hand of cards to us. It's up to us as we go through life to play the hand we're dealt. We can't control the hand we have, but we must play the hand we're dealt. And one of the best things about being a believer is that we can rejoice in trials because we know that God works all things together for his good. One of the things I've learned about suffering is that suffering for God is the college degree of character formation. I mean, that's what suffering is. Suffering is, is an enrollment in a college degree unwillingly, many of the times, in character formation. I, I think of the life of Helen Keller, if you're familiar with her. Helen Keller, if you study her life, at the age of 19 months old, comes down with a serious illness where she is blind and deaf. And uh, after she starts to grow up in her teenage years, she's mad with God, if you can imagine. Why can't she see? Why, why can't she hear? But she decides she's not going to wallow in her suffering, that she's going to make the most of it. And her story is an amazing story. She goes on to become the first deaf, blind person to get a college bachelor's degree in spite of her disability. She goes on to start speaking to people with disabilities, to become, uh, to make people aware uh, of the need in the world. She writes 14 books, you heard that right, 14 books. She travels and speaks at 35 different countries, giving hundreds of different lectures. Here's what she says about suffering. She said, character cannot be developed through ease and in quiet. It's only through trials and suffering that the soul can be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Now, why do I tell you that? This is fascinating. Without a prison cell, Paul never writes the book of Philippians. Think about that. Without a prison, we have no book of Philippians. Why? Because Paul doesn't have to write it, he just speaks it. But because he's in prison, he has to write it. I want you to imagine a Christian life without these words. There will be no for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's not in the Bible. You would never hear these words. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Not in there. You can rip it out of your Bible. But whatever was to my gain, I now count as loss. Indeed, I count everything a loss and view the surpassing value of Christ Jesus, my Lord, who have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish that I may know Christ. None of that's in there. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, not in there. This one thing I do, pressing on to what is ahead and forget, none of that's in there. Why? Because Paul doesn't write the book because he's not in prison. But you can take it a step further. Paul actually wrote, you ready for this? Paul actually wrote 
seven books in prison in this first sent. Do you know that? Actually, in, in all of his prison. If Paul never goes to prison, he doesn't write seven books. Do you know what they are? Not only do we not have the book of Philippians, we don't have the book of First Timothy, don't have the book of Second Timothy, we wouldn't have the book of Titus, Colossians, Ephesians, or Philemon. Why do I say that? You have no, look at me, you have no idea how God is using your present suffering for his glory. You have no idea of the ripple effect of how God is working all of this together for his good. Paul's teaching us that the kingdom advances in spite of our circumstances. Number two, write this down. The kingdom advances even in spite of our motives or other people's motives. The kingdom advances in spite of motives. Notice what he says in verse 15. Now he's in prison now and he said, but I'm hearing there are some who indeed preach Christ from envy and, and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, those who criticize me, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? So what are we supposed to do with this? Watch what he says. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached or proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Here's what Paul's saying. There were some people who were actually preaching Christ for the wrong reason. Now, we see that today in churches. We see that on TV today. We see that with TV preachers today. And Paul's saying there are some out there who preach with envy and uh, discord. There are some who preach with wrong motivations, but there are actually some who are preaching Christ the right way. And here's the principle I think Paul is trying to unpack for us. Coming close. Our best, watch this, our best judgments are normally wrong. What do you mean, Robbie? The best we can judge a situation or a person or a circumstance, we normally don't have the right reading on it. Why? Because we don't know the backstory. We don't know the heart. We don't know where people are. When Candy and I moved into our home in, in Hendersonville, we, we had a tree that was in front. I don't know how they did this, but the guy who, went, who put the garden in put a tree right in front of our window overlooking the front of the house. I don't know why I did, but we, we couldn't see anything. So we decided to relocate the tree. It was a fairly large tree. We dug the tree. We did it professionally. We had a guy come and say, hey, could you reload the, relocate the tree to the side of the house, which they did. But the problem with the tree, for the next three and a half years, it never grew. In fact, over time, the leaves started to wither, the branches never extended, there were no flowers for like three and a half years until last summer, this past summer. And I don't go to that side of the house very often, but I walked over there and I was blown away that this tree that was seemingly dormant for, for years started to grow. I couldn't believe it. The leaves started to turn green. The branches started to extend. There were even some flowers on the trees. And it blew me away. And here's the principle that, that I realized. I want you to get this. I learned that the best growth happens out of sight. The best growth happens 
in the unseen realm. Like we can't really see some of the best growth. And one of the reasons I tell you that is because Paul's culture taught that whatever you see is what you get. For example, in Paul's day, if you were rich and prosperous and successful, you were blessed by God. But if you were in prison and persecuted and always in trouble, you were cursed by God. That was the paradigm. That was the rubric they looked through. And so now you have to understand, they're looking at Paul and they're saying, there's no way this guy's an apostle. Like every time he opens his mouth, he gets in trouble. Every time he preaches, he goes to prison. Every time he comes to town, he's person. This guy can't be of the Lord. In fact, by the way, that's why the Jews had such a hard time with Jesus. Because they couldn't understand how a sovereign savior, a king, would go to a cross and die for our sin. And obviously we know that's the upside down kingdom of God, right? And so they were saying, there's no way Paul can be blessed because Paul is always in trouble. And Paul is showing us something pretty amazing. I want you to get this. Paul says, never judge a book by its cover. Never judge a person by, it, by his or her present struggle. I don't know if you heard about the revival that happened at our church uh, in 2021. It was an amazing God initiated God sent revival uh, over the course of the fifth, first 15 weeks of 2021 in the midst of COVID. We were online for four of the 15 weeks. We, we saw over a thousand people come forward for believers baptism spontaneously. It was, un, it was unbelievable. Uh, we, we baptized people from 17 different states. I never said one time fly in, they would fly in. And the common theme in the tank when people would get in a tank very similar to this and we would baptize people, I would ask them this question, why, why did you come? Why are you here? And this was the common thread across the whole journey. And one year, I think, in that one year, we baptized right at 1,600 people. And I asked them, this is a common thread. They said, the Holy Spirit of God compelled me to come. The Holy Spirit compelled me. Now, a lot of people ask me, well, what led up to that revival of God pouring out his spirit on a church in that season? And you have to back up 10 months before to the beginning of COVID. Uh, and in March of 2020, I began to sit with the Lord, like a lot of pastors, realizing that I was burning out. I didn't know it at the time, but I was burning out. And I was totally unprepared for the challenges of COVID that was coming. I was unprepared for the racial unrest of our country. I was unprepared for the political landscape we were navigating. I was unprepared for the mask, wear a mask or no mask mandate, get the vaccine. And everything you said as a pastor on a stage like this bifurcated the congregation, right? Like everybody was divided over everything. And so I was totally unprepared for that. And so I began to lament to the Lord, like, God, you got to fix the problems in our church and you need to fix the problems in our staff. And I'd sit with the Lord at night in silence and solitude. And I'd say, God, you need to fix the problems with my congregation and my deacon body. And God began to get real with me, if you've ever been here before. And I felt like the Holy Spirit speak to my heart. Robbie, the problem is not uh, with your staff. Uh, the problem is not with the church. It's not with the congregation. It's not with the deacon body. The Lord spoke to me, Robbie, the problem is you. You're the problem. Now, if you've ever been that gut level honest with God before, it's pretty painful, right? Because at first I tried to push back. Like, what do you mean I'm the problem? I'm not really the problem. What are you talking about? I don't have any consistent, persistent sin in my life, which at the time, you know, I didn't. 
I mean, yeah, I struggle with pride and things from time to time, but I didn't have anything I could overtly point to. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works. If you sit long enough with the Holy Spirit, as I begin to sit at night with him for, for one to two hours in silence and solitude, he began to pull back the layers of my own heart. And he began to show me how jealous I was. Jealous of other pastors, jealous of other ministers, jealous of people who got more tweets online or more likes because of posts or more reposts of articles. He began to show me how bitter I was. He began to show me how arrogant I was, how prideful I was. And what happens is I find that when God begins to point out something in your own life that's a blind spot, you become a hypercritic of everyone else who has the same problem. You ever been there before? Like when you realize how prideful you were, then you are critical of everybody else's pride. Or when you realize how much you had a spending problem, then you start seeing everybody else spending their money. When you see how you had a you see what I'm saying? So I started to do that. And I started to be critical of other pastors. Like, why are these guys retweeting all the time about their book? Like, we know they wrote a book. Don't post anymore. That's what I would say to the Lord. You know, or why, is, why are guys so interested in having their articles retweeted? Or why are guys posting the best pictures with the best preachers and having it responded? Or why are guys, this is my favorite I used to say, why do pastors quote their own people on Sunday saying a line that they said about themselves so that you can hear it from me? Like, let me tell you what Mike said about what I said on Sunday morning, and I'm not here to indict anybody. And in the midst of that, the Lord spoke to my heart. Robbie, the reason you see that in others is because you are a master of it yourself. And I realized I had done all of those things. And I'm not here to say you can't retweet yourself and you can't promote a book and you can't promote an article, but I'm saying I couldn't do it at that time with the right motives and still today. And the Lord began to show, show me, Robbie, you have a problem with self-promotion. Robbie, you're a master of fishing in the pond of approval for other people. And in spite of your arrogance and in spite of your self-reliance, I was still glorified. In spite of the fact that you were a master of blurring the lines between the cause of Christ and the platform of Robbie, in spite of all that, I still used it for my glory. Friends, you have to understand something. Paul would say to us this, stop worrying so much about other people. Even people in the church that don't do it the way we do, because obviously the way we do everything is right. right? I mean, that's, that's how it works, right? You gotta realize we, we live in a culture where some churches do things differently. There's some churches right now who are gonna sing gospel music on Sunday morning. And when I share this at Long Hollow, some of my people say, when are we gonna do it? I'm like, not when I'm here. But anyway, I'm not against gospel. I love gospel music, by the way. But some churches do that. Some churches sing traditional songs. Some churches sing hymns. Some churches sing contemporary music. Some churches sing without any music behind them, right? But God's glorified through it all. Some pastors are gonna preach with a loud voice on Sunday. Some are gonna preach in a whisper. Some are gonna preach with a B organ behind them. I've been asking for years for that, Pat. They ain't given it to me yet. Some pastors preach for amens. Some pastors preach for followers. 
Some preach for friends, some preach for likes, some pastors preach politics, some pastors preach against the president, some pastors preach to criticize, some call out other preachers, some call out other churches, some are judgmental, some are hypocritical, and Paul would say it doesn't matter what they're doing, as long as they're preaching Christ, God is glorified. God is gonna use it even if they have the wrong motives in their own heart. So what does that mean? That means you and I, listen to me, don't need to be so judgmental online anymore. Can I speak something into your life with love? The world doesn't need your two cents on Facebook. I don't know if you've heard that lately, but I felt like I need to say that to you, right? Because I need somebody to say that to me. Like the world can get along without your comments on Instagram or your pictures on Snapchat. Like nobody needs your two cents to move on. The world did a whole lot better before we were here and it's gonna continue on after we're gone. Because let me remind you, one day every person in here is going to stand before a just judge and we're gonna give an account for our life and I promise the judge of all the earth will do right. I'm not that judge and neither are you. And I've learned a long time ago that I wanna be an advocate for people, why? Because I want people to advocate for me. And thank God we have an advocate, the Bible says, who's gonna advocate for us, amen? The Bible says his name is Jesus Speaking of promises, Paul says this is the promise. He knows Isaiah 55, 11, where it says, my word will come from my mouth and it will not return to me, what? Empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I was sent. Now, let me show you what Paul is about to teach us. Paul's gonna show us that the power of the gospel is in the gospel message and not the gospeler. The power of the gospel is in the gospel message and not the gospel or the person sharing the message. Now he finishes by showing us in verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is going to play, here's what I want you to see. He's in prison, he doesn't know for how long, and he's going to play the hand that he's dealt. Speaking of hands that are dealt, uh, when I was 16 years old, I was I'm born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. Anybody from Louisiana in here? Okay, I'm from Chalmette, if you know where that is. I tell people Chalmette's like Nazareth. Can anything good come out right there? That's kind of, but anyway, I was from, I'm from New Orleans area and uh, I was 16 years old. I was a, I was a uh, junior in high school and I was waiting for the Bacchus Parade that night on a Sunday night with a friend of mine. and. We were killing time, and so we went to this place called the Jack's Brewery, which is kind of a mall area that has, they have different shops in there. And one of the shops they had was a shop called the Magic Masters, which is basically card tricks and illusions. And I go into the Magic Masters shop, and I meet this guy who's doing tricks as an adult, and I'm thinking, he, now, uh, he's 25, 26, I'm 16, I'm thinking, who in the world does tricks? Isn't that for kids? And he sees me in the back and he's like, hey, big man, come on down, I have a trick to do for you. He says, if, if I do a trick and you, and you can't figure it out, then, then you have to buy it. But if I do the trick and you can figure it out, you don't have to buy it. I'm like, man, I can figure this trick out. And he takes out a silk cloth, he puts it in his finger, he makes it disappear, he leans over the counter, pulls it out of the top pocket of my shirt, and I say, how much? Yeah, man, right, I wanted to buy it. 
And so he began to teach me how to do card tricks. And so ever since I was 16 years old, I've done card tricks. And uh, one of the things about, would y'all like to see a trick? Anybody want to see a trick? Okay, half the audience. Half the audience. Um, so I'll show you. I'll just cut the cards and I'll show you. So what I'm going to do is, um, can you see that? Can you see that? Queen of hearts. So if I take the queen and I put the queen in the deck like that, okay? Now, a lot of people think the card's still on top. That's the queen of diamonds, you can see. Okay. And it's not on the bottom. I'm going to cause the card to shoot. So if it's not at the top or the bottom, it's where? Audience participation. It's in the middle. Yeah, sharp crowd. Um, it's in the middle, right? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to cause the card to shoot from the middle of the deck, do six revolutions in midair, sustain in midair for a second, and come flying back to me. I'm going to make an attempt to catch the card. Would that be a good trick? It'd be a miracle. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Kind of hard to do. Whew, don't want to come up. Golly, can he get it to come up? There it is. There it is, right there, out the middle of the deck. Queen of Hearts. Okay, so it's supposed to look like that. Okay, so I'm doing these tricks uh, as a young boy, and one of the tricks I started to learn was was a poker dealing trick. Where basically, if you've ever played the hand, a game of poker, I would deal the cards to people face down, and my hand was dealt face up, so you can see it. And obviously, when I would deal the cards, the beginning of the trick works where you would look at my hand, and it's obvious that I don't have any hand. I don't have any high cards. I don't have any straight potentials. I don't have a flush option. And you have some pretty decent cards. And at the end of the trick, if you can imagine, all of you lose, and I win with a royal flush. And as I was thinking about this message, I was reminded of that trick that, that I would do because here's the principle. The reason I won in the end is because I was the one dealing the cards. You have to understand, when you were born, you were dealt a hand of cards. Everyone in here has a hand that they're playing. And, and one of the things you should never do is discard the cards or get mad at the cards you've been dealt before you draw more cards. And the way life works is you're gonna go through life and you'll discard some and draw some more cards. And, and through the process, you don't complain about the cards. You don't get mad at the dealer for the cards. You don't look at the other person's hand, wish I had your card. No, you play the hand you're dealt. Listen to me, you play the hand you're dealt. Now here's the good news for us who are Christians. At the beginning of life, when we're dealt this hand of cards, we know the person who distributes the cards. You know who it is? It's God. And when God's the dealer, we all win in eternity. And so what we do is we take the hand we're dealt and we begin to play the hand we're dealt and we don't get upset about it. We realize that this may not look like a good hand right here, but eventually I'll draw some more cards, I'll discard some more cards and I will continue to trust that God is in control. And it may not seem like things are good right now, but I promise you one day when you see Jesus face to face and you see your loved ones again face to face, it will all make sense, I promise. And so what do we do? We do like Paul. We praise the Lord in the midst of the storm. 
What does that mean? That means you praise him, you praise him in the storm and you praise him in the sun. It means you praise him in the light and you praise him in the darkness. You praise him when you're well and you praise him when you're sick. You praise him when you're rich and you praise him when you're broke. You praise him when you're healthy and you praise him when you're not. You praise him with everything you have, your life and your breath, and you praise him, why? Because he is good and his mercies are new every day. Friends, worship changes attitude. And attitude changes our altitude. And so here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. Some of you haven't worshiped the Lord in a while. And I'm not talking about just physically singing, although that's a part of it, but you haven't worshiped and counted God worthy in a while. I don't know what you're struggling with here personally today, but, but I don't need to because the Lord knows what you're dealing with. And I wanna invite you right now, I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, I'm just gonna invite you to come and just to make the front of this platform here an altar before God. And I want you to take your struggle and your difficulty and your trial, and I want you to present that before the Lord. And I, I don't know what that looks like for you, but I just want you to come and lay that at the feet of Jesus, and I just want you to worship God through the pain, through the tears, through the struggle, through the trial, because you know that God's worthy to be worshiped. And so let me pray for us right now. Maybe you're in here today and you're saying, well, pastor, I don't know, I don't know Jesus. Suffering does not make sense apart from the cross. The cross is what makes suffering make sense because Jesus didn't go around suffering. He didn't avoid suffering. God sent Jesus in the suffering to absorb the suffering so that suffering makes sense. So if you've never surrendered your life to Christ before, let me invite you right now to run to Jesus, to receive salvation, and to present your life as a living sacrifice to him. So I'm gonna ask you now, others have already come, if you just feel compelled by the Holy Spirit. I like to say at my church, if you, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. That's what the Bible says. If you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. So I'm gonna invite you right now. If you, if you need to come with every head bowed and every eye closed and just make these steps uh, right here, this platform and altar, you come. You come, praise God. You come and just pray before the Lord. Father, we pray right now as people come and praise you, God, with our lips. We praise you with our life. We praise you in the good times. We praise you in the bad times. We praise you in the suffering. We praise you in the triumph. We praise you in life. We praise you through loss. We praise you through darkness. We praise you in the light. We praise you in the storm. We praise you through the sun. Let everything that has breath in here praise the Lord. For you are good. You're a good God. And so we love you. We ask it today in the only name we know how. And that's the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, we're gonna stand and we're gonna ask some of our deacons to come forward today. And as you're standing, if you just wanna come and pray before the Lord, I don't want you to miss this moment with God. Uh, as the Lord leads you, just obey the Holy Spirit and you come as we sing.